0: section one of aspects of love an anthology this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org recording by tony addison aspects of love an anthology symposium by plato translated by benjamin jowett persons of the dialogue apollodorus who repeats to his companion the dialogue which he had heard from aristodemus and had already once narrated Glaucon, Phaedrus, Pausanias, Eryximachus, Aristophanes, Agathon, Socrates, Alcibiades, a troop of revellers. Scene The House of Agathon. Concerning the things about which you ask to be informed, I believe that I am not ill-prepared with an answer, for the day before yesterday I was coming from my own home at Falerum to the city, and one of my acquaintance, who had caught a sight of me from behind, calling out playfully in the distance, said, Apollodorus, O thou Falerium! Probably a play of words on Greek. "'Bald-headed. "'Man, halt!' "'So I did as I was bid, "'and then he said, "'I was looking for you, Apollodorus, "'only just now, "'that I might ask you "'about the speeches in praise of love "'which were delivered by Socrates, "'Alcibiades, and others, "'at Agaton's supper. "'If Phoenix, the son of Philip, "'told another person who told me of them, "'his narrative was very indistinct, "'but he said that you knew, and I wish that you would give me an account of them. "'Who, if not you, should be the reporter of the words of your friend? "'And first tell me,' he said, "'were you present at this meeting?' "'Your informant Glaucon,' I said, "'must have been very indistinct indeed, "'if you imagine that the occasion was recent or that i could have been of the party why yes he replied i thought so impossible i said are you ignorant that for many years agathon has not resided at athens and not three have elapsed since i became acquainted with socrates and have made it my daily business to know all that he says and does there was a time when i was running about the world fancying myself to be well employed but i was really a most wretched being no better than you are now i thought that i ought to do anything rather than be a philosopher well he said jesting apart tell me when the meeting occurred in our boyhood i replied when agaton won the prize with his first tragedy "'on the day after that on which he and his chorus "'offered the sacrifice of victory. "'Then it must have been a long while ago,' he said. "'And who told you, did Socrates?' "'No, indeed,' I replied. "'But the same person who told Phoenix. "'He was a little fellow who never wore any shoes. "'Aristodemus of the deme of Cedothenium. "'He had been at Agaton's Feast, and I think that in those days there was no one who was a more devoted admirer of Socrates. Moreover, I have asked Socrates about the truth of some parts of his narrative, and he confirmed them. Then, said Glaucon, let us have the tale over again. Is not the road to Athens just made for conversation? And so we walked, and talked of the discourses on love and therefore as i said at first i am not ill prepared to comply with your request and will have another rehearsal of them if you like for to speak or to hear others speak of philosophy always gives me the greatest pleasure to say nothing of the prophet but when i hear another strain especially that of you rich men and traders Such conversation displeases me, and I pity you, who are my companions, because you think that you are doing something, when in reality you are doing nothing, and, I dare say, that you pity me in return, whom you regard as an unhappy creature, and very probably you are right, but I certainly know of you what you only think of me. There is the difference companion i see apollodorus that you are just the same always speaking evil of yourself and of others and i do believe that you pity all mankind with the exception of socrates yourself first of all true in this to your old name which however deserved i know not how you acquired of apollodorus the madman for you are always raging against yourself and everybody but Socrates. Apollodorus Yes, friend, and the reason why I am said to be mad and out of my wits is just because I have these notions of myself and you. No other evidence is required. Companion No more of that, Apollodorus, but let me renew my request that you would repeat the conversation. Apollodorus. Well, the tale of love was on this wise. But perhaps I had better begin at the beginning and endeavour to give you the exact words of Aristodemus. He said that he met Socrates fresh from the bath and sandalled, and as the sight of the sandals was unusual, he asked him whither he was going, that he had been converted into such a beau, "'To a banquet at Agathon's. he replied, "'whose invitation to his sacrifice of victory I refused yesterday, fearing a crowd, "'but promising that I would come to-day instead. "'And so I have put on my finery, because he is such a fine man. "'What say you to going with me, Anas?' "'I will do as you bid me,' I replied.' Follow then," he said, and let us demolish the proverb, To the feasts of inferior men, the good unbidden go, Instead of which our proverb will run, To the feasts of the good, the good unbidden go. And this alteration may be supported by the authority of Homer himself, Who not only demolishes, but literally outrages the proverb. For after picturing Agamemnon as the most valiant of men, he makes Menelaus, who is but a faint-hearted warrior, come unbidden to the banquet of Agamemnon, who is feasting and offering sacrifices not the better to the worse, but the worse to the better. I rather fear Socrates, said Aristodemus, lest this may still be my case, and that, like Menelaus in Homer, I shall be the inferior person, who to the feasts of the wise unbidden goes. But I shall say that I was bidden of you, and then you will have to make an excuse. Two going together, he replied, in Homeric fashion, one or other of them may invent an excuse by the way. This was the style of their conversation as they went along. Socrates dropped behind in a fit of abstraction, and desired Aristodemus who was waiting, to go on before him. When he reached the house of Agaton, he found the doors wide open, and a comical thing happened. A servant coming out met him, and led him at once into the banqueting-hall, in which the guests were reclining, for the banquet was about to begin. "'Welcome, Aristodemus,' said Agaton, as soon as he appeared. "'You are just in time to sup with us. If you come on any other matter, put it off.' and make one of us. As I was looking for you yesterday, I meant to have asked you if I could have found you, but what have you done with Socrates?' I turned round, but Socrates was nowhere to be seen, and I had to explain that he had been with me a moment before, and that I came by his invitation to the supper. "'You were quite right in coming,' said Agaton, "'but where is he himself?' He was behind me just now, as I entered, he said and i cannot think what has become of him go and look for him boy said agathon and bring him in and do you aristodemus and meanwhile take the place by eryxamachus the servant then assisted him to wash and he lay down and presently another servant came in and reported that our friend socrates had retired into the portico of the neighbouring house there he is fixed said he and when I call to him, he will not stir. "'How strange!' said Agaton. "'Then you must call him again, and keep calling him.' "'Let him alone,' said my informant. "'He has a way of stopping anywhere, and losing himself without any reason. "'I believe that he will soon appear. "'Do not therefore disturb him.' "'Well, if you think so, I will leave him,' said Agaton. "'And then, turning to the servants, he added—' let us have supper without waiting for him. Serve up whatever you please, for there is no one to give you orders. Hitherto I have never left you to yourselves, but on this occasion imagine that you are our hosts, and that I and the company are your guests. Treat us well, and then we shall commend you." After this supper was served, but still no Socrates, and during the meal Agathon several times expressed a wish to send for him, but Aristodemus objected, and at last, when the feast was about half over, for the fit, as usual, was not of long duration, Socrates entered. Agathon, who was reclining alone at the end of the table, begged that he would take the place next to him. "'That I may touch you,' he said, and have the benefit of that wise thought which came into your mind in the portico, and is now in your possession, for I am certain that you would not have come away until you had found what you sought. How I wish, said Socrates, taking his place as he was desired, that wisdom could be infused by touch, out of the fuller into the emptier man, as water runs through wool, out of a fuller cup into an emptier one. If that were so, How greatly should I value the privilege of reclining at your side! For you would have filled me full with a stream of wisdom plenteous and fair, Whereas my own is of a very mean and questionable sort, no better than a dream. But yours is bright and full of promise, and was manifested forth in all the splendour of youth The day before yesterday, in the presence of more than thirty thousand Hellenes. You are mocking, Socrates, said Agathon, and ere long you and I will have to determine who bears off the palm of wisdom. Of this Dionysus shall be the judge, but at present you are better occupied with supper. Socrates took his place on the couch, and supped with the rest, and then libations were offered, and after a hymn had been sung to the god, and there had been the usual ceremonies. They were about to commence drinking, when Pausanias said, "'And now, my friends, how can we drink, with least injury to ourselves? I can assure you that I feel severely the effect of yesterday's potations, and must have time to recover, and I suspect that most of you are in the same predicament, for you were at the party yesterday.' "'Consider them. How can the drinking be made easiest?' "'I entirely agree,' said Aristophanes, "'that we should by all means avoid hard drinking, "'for I was myself one of those who were yesterday drowned in drink.' <laughs> "'I think that you are right,' said Ariximachus, the son of Acumenus. "'But I should still like to hear one other person speak. "'Is Agaton able to drink hard?' i am not equal to it said agathon then said eryximachus the weak heads like myself aristodemus phaedrus and others who never can drink are fortunate in finding that the stronger ones are not in a drinking mood i do not include socrates who is able either to drink or to abstain and will not mind whichever we do Well." As none of the company seem disposed to drink much, I may be forgiven for saying, as a physician, that drinking deep is a bad practice, which I never follow, if I can help, and certainly do not recommend to another, least of all to any one who still feels the effects of yesterday's carouse. "'I always do what you advise, and especially what you prescribe as a physician,' rejoined Phaedrus, the Merenusian." and the rest of the company, if they are wise, will do the same. It was agreed that drinking was not to be the order of the day, but that they were all to drink only so much as they pleased. Then, said Eriximachus, as you are all agreed that drinking is to be voluntary, and that there is to be no compulsion, I move in the next place that the flute-girl, who has just made her appearance, be told to go away and play to herself, or, if she likes, to the women who are within. Today, let us have conversation instead, and, if you will allow me, I will tell you what sort of conversation. This proposal having been accepted, Eryximachus proceeded as follows. "'I will begin,' he said, after the manner of Melanippe in Euripides. "'Not mind the word.' which I am about to speak, but that of Phaedrus. For often, he says to me, in an indignant tone, What a strange thing it is, Eryximachus, that whereas other gods have poems and hymns made in their honour, the great and glorious god Love has no encomiast among all the poets who are so many. There are the worthy sophists, too, the excellent Prodicus, for example, who have descanted in prose on the virtues of heracles and other heroes and what is still more extraordinary i have met with a philosophical work in which the utility of salt has been made the theme of an eloquent discourse and many other like things have had a like honour bestowed upon them and only to think that there should have been an eager interest created about them and yet that to this day No one has ever dared worthily to him love's praises. So entirely has this great deity been neglected. Now, in this, Aphidrus seems to me to be quite right, and therefore I want to offer him a contribution. Also, I think that at the present moment, we, who are here assembled, cannot do better than honour the god-love. If you agree with me, there will be no lack of conversation, for I mean to propose that each of us, in turn, going from left to right, shall make a speech in honour of love. Let him give us the best which he can. And Phaedrus, because he is sitting first on the left hand, and because he is the father of the thought, shall begin. "'No one will vote against you, Eryximachus," said Socrates. How can I oppose your motion, who profess to understand nothing but matters of love? Nor, I presume, will Agathon and Pausanias, and there can be no doubt of Aristophanes, whose whole concern is with Dionysus and Aphrodite, nor will any one disagree of those whom I see around me. The proposal, as I am aware, may seem rather hard upon us whose is last, but we shall be contented if we hear some good speeches first. Let Phaedrus begin the praise of love, and good luck to him. All the company expressed their assent, and desired him to do as Socrates bade him. Aristodemus did not recollect all that was said, nor do I recollect all that he related to me, but I will tell you what I thought most worthy of remembrance and what the chief speakers said. Phaedrus began by affirming that love is a mighty god, and wonderful among gods and men, but especially wonderful in his birth, for he is the eldest of the gods, which is an honour to him, and a proof of his claim to this honour is that of his parents there is no memorial, neither poet nor prose writer has ever affirmed that he had any, As Hesiod says, first chaos came, and then broad-bosomed earth, the everlasting seat of all that is, and love. In other words, after chaos, the earth, and love, these two came into being. Also Parmenides sings of generation, first in the train of gods he fashioned love, and Accusinios agrees with Hesiod thus numerous, are the witnesses who acknowledge love to be the eldest of the gods. And not only is he the eldest, he is also the source of the greatest benefits to us. For I know not any greater blessing to a young man who is beginning life than a virtuous lover, or to the lover than a beloved youth, for the principle which ought to be the guide of men who would nobly live, that principle, I say, neither kindred, nor honour, nor wealth, nor any other motive is able to implant so well as love. Of what am I speaking? Of the sense of honour and dishonour, without which neither states nor individuals ever do any good or great work. And I say that a lover who is detected in doing any dishonourable act, or submitting through cowardice when any dishonour is done to him by another, will be more pained at being detected by his beloved than at being seen by his father, or by his companions, or by anyone else. The beloved, too, when he is found in any disgraceful situation, has the same feeling about his lover. And if there were only some way of contriving that a state or an army should be made up of lovers, and their lovers, they would be the very best governors of their own city, abstaining from all dishonour, and emulating one another in honour, and when fighting at each other's side, although a mere handful, they would overcome the world. For what lover would not choose rather to be seen by all mankind than by his beloved, either when abandoning his post or throwing away his arms he would be ready to die a thousand deaths rather than endure this or who would desert his beloved or fail him in the hour of danger the veriest coward would become an inspired hero equal to the bravest at such a time love would inspire him that courage which as homer says the god breathes into the souls of some heroes love of his own nature infuses into the lover love will make men dare to die for their beloved love alone and women as well as men of this alcestis the daughter of peleas is a monument to all hellas for she was willing to lay down her life on behalf of her husband when no one else would although he had a father and mother but the tenderness of her love so far exceeded theirs that she made them seem to be strangers in blood to their own son, and in name only related to him. And so noble did this action of hers appear to the gods as well as to men, that among the many who have done virtuously, she is one of the very few to whom, in admiration of her noble action, they have granted the privilege of returning alive to earth. Such exceeding honour is paid by the gods to the devotion and virtue of love. But Orpheus, the son of Iagrus, the harper, they sent empty away, and presented to him an apparition only of her whom he sought, but herself they would not give up, because he showed no spirit, he was only a harp-player, and did not dare like Alcestis die for love, but was contriving how he might enter Hades alive. Moreover, they afterwards caused him to suffer death at the hands of women as the punishment of his cowardliness. Very different was the reward of the true love of Achilles towards his lover Patroclus, his lover and not his love. The notion that Patroclus was the beloved one, is a foolish error, into which Aeschylus has fallen, for Achilles was surely the fairer of the two, fairer also than all the other heroes, and, as Homer informs us, he was still beardless and younger far. And, greatly as the gods honour the virtue of love, still the return of love on the part of the beloved to the lover is more admired and valued and rewarded by them for the lover is more divine because he is inspired by god now achilles was quite aware for he had been told by his mother that he might avoid death and return home and live to a good old age if he abstained from slaying hector nevertheless he gave his life to revenge his friend and dared to die not only in his defence but after he was dead. Wherefore the gods honoured him, even above Alcestis, and sent him to the islands of the blessed. These are my reasons for affirming that love is the eldest and noblest and mightiest of the gods, and the chiefest author and giver of virtue in life, and of happiness after death. This, or something like this, was the speech of Phaedrus, and some other speeches followed, which Aristodemus did not remember. The next which he repeated was that of Pausanias. Phaedrus, he said, the argument has not been set before us, I think, quite in the right form. We should not be called upon to praise love in such an indiscriminate manner. If there were only one love, then what you said would be well enough but since there are more loves than one, we should have begun by determining which of them was to be the theme of our praises. I will amend this defect, and first of all I will tell you which love is deserving of praise, and then try to hymn the praiseworthy one in a manner worthy of him. For we all know that love is inseparable from Aphrodite, and if there were only one Aphrodite there will be only one love. But as there are two goddesses, there must be two loves. And am I not right in asserting that there are two goddesses? The elder one, having no mother, who is called the heavenly Aphrodite. She is the daughter of Uranus, the younger, who is the daughter of Zeus and Dione, her we call common, and the love, who is her fellow-worker, is rightly named common, as the other love is called heavenly. All the gods ought to have praise given to them, but not without distinction of their natures, and therefore I must try to distinguish the characters of the two loves. Now actions vary according to the manner of their performance. Take, for example, that which we are now doing, drinking. Singing and talking. These actions are not in themselves either good or evil, but they turn out in this or that way according to the mode of performing them, and when well done they are good, and when wrongly done they are evil. And in like manner, not every love, but only that which has a noble purpose, is noble and worthy of praise. The love who is the offspring of the common aphrodite, is essentially common, and has no discrimination, being such as the meaner sort of men feel, and is apt to be of women, as well as of youths, and is of the body rather than of the soul. The most foolish beings are the objects of this love, which desires only to gain an end, but never thinks of accomplishing the end nobly, and therefore does good and evil, quite indiscriminately. The goddess, who is his mother, is far younger than the other, and she was born of the union of the male and female, and partakes of both. But the offspring of the heavenly Aphrodite is derived from a mother in whose birth the female has no part. She is from the male only. This is that love which is of youths, and the goddess being older, there is nothing of wantonness in her. Those who are inspired by this love turn to the male, and delight in him who is of the more valiant and intelligent nature. Any one may recognize the pure enthusiasts in the very character of their attachments, for they love not boys, but intelligent beings, whose reason is beginning to be developed much about the time at which their beards begin to grow. And in choosing young men to be their companions, they mean to be faithful to them, and pass their whole life in company with them, not to take them in their inexperience, and deceive them, and play the fool with them, or run away from one to another of them. But the love of young boys should be forbidden by law, because their future is uncertain they may turn out good or bad, either in body or soul, and much noble enthusiasm may be thrown away upon them. In this matter the good are a law to themselves, and the coarser sort of lovers ought to be restrained by force, as we restrain or attempt to restrain them from fixing their affections on women of free birth. These are the persons who bring a reproach on love, and some have been led to deny the lawfulness of such attachments, because they see the impropriety and evil of them, for surely nothing that is decorously and lawfully done can justly be censured. Now, here, and in Lacedaemon, the rules about love are perplexing, but in most cities they are simple and easily intelligible. In Ellis and Boeotia, and in countries having no gifts of eloquence, they are very straightforward. The law is simply in favour of these connections, and no one, whether young or old, has anything to say to their discredit, the reason being, as I suppose, that they are men of few words in those parts, and therefore the lovers do not like the trouble of pleading their suit. In Ionia, and other places, and generally in countries which are subject to the barbarians, the custom is held to be dishonourable. Loves of youths share the evil repute in which philosophy and gymnastics are held, because they are inimical to tyranny, for the interests of rulers require that their subjects should be poor in spirit, and that there should be no strong bond of friendship or society among them which love, above all other motives, is likely to inspire, as our athenian tyrants learned by experience for the love of aristogiton and the constancy of harmodius had a strength which undid their power and therefore the ill-repute into which these attachments have fallen is to be ascribed to the evil condition of those who make them to be ill-reputed that is to say to the self-seeking of the governors and the cowardice of the governed. On the other hand, the indiscriminate honour which is given to them in some countries is attributable to the laziness of those who hold this opinion of them. In our own country a far better principle prevails, but, as I was saying, the explanation of it is rather perplexing, for observe that open loves are held to be more honourable than secret ones and that the love of the noblest and highest, even if their persons are less beautiful than others, is especially honourable. Consider, too, how great is the encouragement which all the world gives to the lover. Neither is he supposed to be doing anything dishonourable, but if he succeeds, he is praised, and if he fail, he is blamed. And in the pursuit of his love, the custom of mankind allows him to do many strange things, which philosophy would bitterly censure if they were done from any motive of interest, or wish for office or power. He may pray, and entreat, and supplicate, and swear, and lie on a mat at the door, and endure a slavery worse than that of any slave. In any other case, friends and enemies Would be equally ready to prevent him, but now there is no friend who will be ashamed of him and admonish him, and no enemy will charge him with meanness or flattery. The actions of a lover have a grace which ennobles them, and custom has decided that they are highly commendable, and that there is no loss of character in them, and what is strangest of all, he only may swear and forswear himself, so men say and the gods will forgive his transgression, for there is no such thing as a lover's oath. Such is the entire liberty which gods and men have allowed the lover, according to the custom which prevails in our part of the world. From this point of view, a man fairly argues that in Athens to love and to be loved is held to be a very honourable thing, but when parents forbid their sons to talk with their lovers, and place them under a tutor's care who is appointed to see to these things, and their companions and equals cast in their teeth anything of the sort which they may observe, and their elders refuse to silence the reprovers and do not rebuke them, any one who reflects on all this will on the contrary think that we hold these practices to be most disgraceful but, as I was saying at first, the truth, as I imagine, is that whether such practices are honourable, or whether they are dishonourable, is not a simple question. They are honourable to him who follows them honourably, dishonourable to him who follows them dishonourably. There is dishonour in yielding to the evil, or in an evil manner, but there is honour in yielding to the good, or in an honourable manner evil is the vulgar lover who loves the body rather than the soul inasmuch as he is not even stable because he loves a thing which is in itself unstable and therefore when the bloom of youth which he was desiring is over he takes wing and flies away in spite of all his words and promises whereas the love of the noble disposition is lifelong for it becomes one with the everlasting. The custom of our country would have both of them proven well and truly, and would have us yield to the one sort of lover and avoid the other, and therefore encourages some to pursue and others to fly, testing both the lover and beloved in contests and trials, until they show to which of the two classes they respectively belong. And this is the reason why, in the first place, a hasty attachment is held to be dishonourable, because time is the true test of this as of most other things. And secondly, there is a dishonour in being overcome by the love of money, or of wealth, or of political power, whether a man is frightened into surrender by the loss of them, or having experienced the benefits of money and political corruption, is unable to rise above the seductions of them. For none of these things are of a permanent or lasting nature, not to mention that no generous friendship ever sprang from them. There remains then only one way of honourable attachment which custom allows in the beloved, and this is the way of virtue. For as we admitted that any service which the lover does to him is not to be accounted flattery or a dishonour to himself, so the beloved has one way only of voluntary service, which is not dishonourable, and this is virtuous service. For we have a custom, and according to our custom, any one who does service to another under the idea that he will be improved by him, either in wisdom or in some other particular of virtue. Such a voluntary service, I say, is not to be regarded as a dishonour, And is not open to the charge of flattery. And these two customs, one the love of youth, and the other the practice of philosophy and virtue in general, ought to meet in one, and then the beloved may honourably indulge the lover. For when the lover and beloved come together, having each of them a law, and the lover thinks that he is right in doing any service which he can to his gracious loving one, and the other that he is right in showing any kindness which he can to him who is making him wise and good, the one capable of communicating wisdom and virtue, the other seeking to acquire them with a view to education and wisdom, when the two laws of love are fulfilled and meet in one, then, and then only, may the beloved yield with honour, to the lover. Nor when love is of this disinterested sort is there any disgrace in being deceived, but in every other case there is equal disgrace in being or not being deceived. For he who is gracious to his lover, under the impression that he is rich, and is disappointed of his gains, because he turns out to be poor, is disgraced all the same, for he has done his best to show that he would give himself up to any one's uses base for the sake of money but this is not honourable and on the same principle he who gives himself to a lover because he is a good man and in the hope that he will be improved by his company shows himself to be virtuous even though the object of his affection turn out to be a villain and to have no virtue and if he is deceived he has committed a noble error for he has proved that for his part he will do anything for anybody with a view to virtue and improvement, than which there can be nothing nobler. Thus noble in every case is the acceptance of another for the sake of virtue. This is that love which is the love of the heavenly goddess, and is heavenly, and of great price to individuals and cities, making the lover and the beloved alike eager in the work of their own improvement but all other loves of the offspring of the other who is the common goddess to you phaedrus i offer this my contribution in praise of love which is as good as i could make extempore end of section one